Well, greetings and salutations, everybody. Welcome to my YouTube channel. My name is John Campia, and this is a companion video. What are companion videos? Well, I'm awfully glad that you asked. See, every day on the John Campia Show, Monday through Friday, we take the second half of the show to take your live comments and questions. However, we often don't have enough time to get around to all the live comments and questions that get sent in, even though we do the show for two hours. But I want to make sure that those questions get answered properly in a video, and you don't have to wait too long for those answers. So I get those questions together, and we address them here on companion videos. Now, this is being recorded on Monday, January the 4th. I think today's Monday. Is it today? Is today Monday? I can't remember. This, like, seriously, time has been really, really weird. Yes, today is Monday, January. Well, greetings and salutations, everybody. Welcome to my YouTube channel. My name is John Campia, and this is a companion video. What are companion videos? Well, I'm awfully glad that you asked. See, every day on the John Campia Show, Monday through Friday, we take the second half of the show to take your live comments and questions. However, we often don't have enough time to get around to all the live comments and questions that get sent in, even though we do the show for two hours. But I want to make sure that those questions get answered properly in a video, and you don't have to wait too long for those answers. So I get those questions together, and we address them here on companion videos. Now, this is being recorded on Monday, January the 4th. I think today's Monday. Is it today? Is today Monday? I can't remember this. Like, seriously, time has been really, really weird. Yes, today is Monday, January the 4th. And uh, let's start getting to some questions, shall we? We're going to start getting caught up here with an anonymous viewer who writes in. I'm going to remain anonymous for my safety. I'm a Giants fan. So sorry for your year. Uh, and I was rooting for Washington to win. I hate the idea of winning the division with a 6-10 and 10 record. That's embarrassing if you ask me. So go ahead, Washington and Alex Smith. Try to make history. Hashtag respect. Yeah, what was funny going into the final weekend of the NFL was that if Washington lost yesterday and Washington won and therefore wins the division at 7-9 and nine, and they get to go to the playoffs, there are 10 win teams in the NFL that are going home now. They don't get to be in the playoffs, but Washington at seven and nine gets to go to the playoffs. But here's the funny thing. Had Washington lost yesterday, they would have been six and 10. The New York Giants were also six and 10, but the New York Giants have a tie break over the Washington Redskins. So if Washington had lost, the Giants would have gone to the playoffs at six and 10. It is completely embarrassing for everybody, for the entire NFC East. It's completely embarrassing, but hey, Alex Smith is the feel-good story of the year, and you can't help but cheer for the guy. Anyway, good on you, Anonymous. All right, Angry Ogre writes, Hey, John, sorry for the very painfully written comment in your last companion video. Uh, that will teach me to try and text from my phone with autocorrect. Having a field day. Thanks for, for uh, muscling through that mess. Have a great day. No probably Angry Ogre. I know a lot of times people send in their comments, probably using voice dictation because they're on the road or doing it via text and there's autocorrection. Sometimes it is, you guys have seen, sometimes reading through questions is a little challenging. I Sometimes I need to stop and go back to the beginning and try to figure out what somebody's saying. But it's very good of you to follow up with that angry ogre. Thanks a lot. And I think we got through your question anyway, but thank you so much for your courtesy of following up anyway. I appreciate that, man. All right, next up, Wakandan Forever writes, Boards don't hit back. Bruce Lee, Ender the Dragon. Very good, but Brick not hit back. Chong Lee, Bloodsport. Uh, that always stood out to me even as a kid. What reused movie phrase stands out to you? Uh, if I can, one more real quick. Favorite martial arts film? Well, I mean, what's your favorite movie quote? There are, there are thousands. I, I, I can't possibly pick one off the top of my head, but I mean, there's a couple in Bloodsport alone, right? You are next. I love that. I love that one. Um, anyway. Love Bloodsport. Uh, my favorite martial arts film of all time 
It depends on the day you ask me, but generally for a very long time, and this is not the best martial arts film of all time, but my favorite is an old style Kung Fu movie called Shaolin versus Lama. Uh, classic Kung Fu movie setup. Uh, guy's master. First of all, you got this guy who's great at Kung Fu and he's searching the country for somebody who's better than him to be his master. And he's having an impossible time finding somebody better than him. Find somebody, comes their master, this evil guy kills his master. Now he wants revenge for the death of his master, just like every other Kung Fu movie, right? But for whatever reason, it's awesome. One of my favorite, speaking of favorite lines, one of my favorite lines from any movie comes from Kung Fu versus Lama, where basically... Uh, this guy who's trying to find a new master, he's challenging all these different masters. And he's like, if I, if I beat you, you will not be my master. But if you beat me, you can use this stick to beat me for my insolence. It's one of, I don't know why, it's just one of my favorite lines I've ever seen. If you've never seen, if you like Kung Fu movies and you've never seen Shaolin versus Lama, you got to get it. It ends with the bad guy screaming, slapping his head. I'm not kidding. The bad guy slapping his head yelling, I must... Uh, kill, I must kill myself to prove Buddha exists. I still to this day have no idea what that meant, but it was pretty funny to see. Okay, next up, uh, we've got the Fighting Canuck. I like that name, writes. I was engaging with somebody on an Indiana Jones fan page who said, if Harrison Ford wants to play Indy until he's 100, that's his right. Well, it's not his right, as a matter of fact. I replied that Harrison Ford is being paid to do a job. No one has the right to have a specific job. Do you agree? Yeah. Yeah, you're right. I mean, here's what I would say, though. There's an old saying going around that goes around collectibles and comic books and things like that. When you ask about what is something worth, something is worth whatever somebody's willing to pay for it. If there is somebody who's willing to pay $5,000 for a sealed, you know, Action Comics number one, and I'm sure you can get it much more than that, but if that's what somebody's willing to pay for it, that's what it's worth. If there is a studio that still wants Harrison Ford to play Indiana Jones, then God bless him. Go, go with God, man. God bless you. I mean, yes, it is funny when you think about it, the Indiana Jones, that Harrison Ford is going to be playing Indiana Jones, and he is now like, what, seven years older than Sean Connery was when Sean Connery played his dad? In the last Indiana Jones film, not including Crystal Skull, uh, uh, you know, Indiana Jones 3, The Last Crusade, still my favorite Indiana Jones film. But listen, Harrison Ford, and by the way, I forget. Hey, Google, how old is Harrison Ford? I think he's 73. Let's find out here. 78 years old. I, I say it was way off. He's 78. Harrison Ford is 78 years old. I got to double check that. I don't, I don't know if I'm believing Google on that 78 yeah 78 years old if they do go ahead and make this next indiana jones movie which they say they're doing i still have my doubts but if they do he's going to be walking the red carpet as an 80 year old dude indiana jones is gonna be 80 but you know what hey if if studio still wants to make it and there's an audience who still wants to see it god bless them why not you keep making those indiana jones movies harrison ford you're one of the greats that they still want to make it with you. Now, if they don't want to make it with them, it's not like they owe it to him to make more Indiana Jones movies. That's completely bullshit. They don't owe it. They don't owe him anything. But if they still want to make more and the audience wants more and he's willing to do it, God bless him. God bless Harrison Ford. All right, next up. Uh, let's see. McKeel writes, one of two. 
I don't think that people are saying that Max gave Barbara a second wish. Oh, yes, they are. Not all of them, but many, many people are saying Max gave Barbara a second wish. Anyway, uh, I think they're saying that he made her cheetah in return, in return from other people's wishes, like in return, he was taking the life force and other stuff from people. Even then, if Barbara lost her cheetah form from Max renouncing his wish, which isn't what happened, uh, wouldn't all the life force he took disappear also, leaving him dead? Or does he not need the life force because the wishes were renounced? Either way, the movie is a mess. Here's the problem. We're trying to make a rational explanation for a movie that did not rationalize its own story. We, like whenever a movie leaves it up up to us as the audience to try to figure out what the rationale is for the things that happened, that's the bad sign because the movie itself did not rationally think out what things were going on. The movie itself did not account for rationality. The world's about to end from all these people making their wishes. What if one kid somewhere wished for world peace? What happens to the world being destroyed then? Oh, they didn't think about that, did they? You know, I mean, there's there's just no rationalizing. Look, the movie is not total garbage. There are some people making out to be total garbage. They've got their own agendas, whatever. It's not complete garbage. It has its redeeming elements. It has its redeeming qualities. It does. And there are some some pretty good scenes in the movie. But even I, who was really excited about this movie and really looking forward, even I will tell you, I think it's a pretty big disappointment. And the, the script just, it's not a terrible script. But again, they didn't figure out, they didn't take the time to figure out the logic, the internal logic of its own script. And so Mikhail, there's no point in us trying to figure it out because the writers of the movie didn't figure it out. So there's no point in us trying to do it. All right. Thanks for writing that in, man. All right. The great Bondi writes, hi, John, can we take a minute to appreciate the casting of Imperial offer officers on the Mandalorian on point? Now I just want a mockumentary directed by Taika Waititi of just a group of Imperial officers fighting for power on a headless empire. Love his humor. Oh yeah. Taika Waititi's gold, man. Like I already, I was already a big fan of Taika Waititi and his humor. Like when you see what we do in the shadows and you saw what he did with Thor Ragnarok and and other things, but it's when I saw Jojo rabbit, his ability to take his humor and apply it in incredibly emotionally powerful moments and shocking moments where you can feel the weight of the world and then feel like you're going to pass out from laughing at the same time. I mean, what he did with Meet Jojo Rabbit is astonishing. And it's, I was a fan of his, but I don't know what the next level above just a fan is with that. But that's what I became with Taika Waititi after seeing Jojo Rabbit. I mean, that that movie was incredible. It really showed off his humor style. And for him to do a little mockumentary like that, that would be pretty funny. All right, uh, let's see. Sam Fisher writes, I feel I'm the only person who hates the idea of Toby and Andrew in Spider-Man three with the multiverse and the idea that Morbius and Venom also take place in the MCU with Keaton's vulture just feels like too much. I'm worried about another overcrowded Spidey universe. Now, listen, you're, you're not wrong to feel concerned. I'm concerned about it. There was a time, a lot of people forget about it now. When, you know, DC comics started getting so convoluted 
And with all the various stuff they had going on and all that now the crossing of wires and the crossovers and the, and they just were, were like contradicting their own canon with different characters, blah, blah. It became such a mess that they did a big universe reset and they've done it again since uh, at any rate. But I worry about, and I've, I've worried about this for 10 years, to be honest with you, even once the Marvel cinematic universe started rolling, you can go all the way back to my AMC days. I, I've said, I worry about a day where things get so convoluted and they go too far that it's just going to become a jarbled, nonsensical, novelty mess. And the more they get into all this multiverse nonsense, uh, not that it can't be great, it could be great, like Spider-Man Into the Multiverse was amazing, but the more they get into it, the more and more dangerously close to that line they're getting. Now, there's very few people I trust more than Kevin Feige to handle the narrative stuff with that. Um, and I know Sony wants to be very protective of Spider-Man at the same time. So when you've got Sony who wants to be very protective of Spider-Man, especially after the way they've burned themselves in, in years past, but you take the way they want to be very protective of Spider-Man. You take the way that just the skill of Kevin Feige to navigate these very dangerous waters. I feel pretty good about it that they're going to come up with a really good narrative. Now, here's my theory. No one's told me this. This is just my theory. We know that because Kevin Feige has said that Spider-Man 3, WandaVision, and Doctor Strange and the Multiverse of Madness is all going to kind of be one tied-in story. I believe that the end game, no pun intended, the end game of these three stories is going to be the closing off of the multiverse before it becomes really an out-of-hand, totally convoluted mess. I think they're going to use these stories to close off. Now, now again, no one's telling me that. I don't have insider information. This is just me speculating as a fan. That's it. Uh, but I think they're going to use it to close off the multiverse. They're going to play in the multiverse for a bit, and then they're going to close it off and get back to like a little bit more grounded storytelling. So that's my guess. But you have every right to feel concerned every right to be concerned. I'm a little bit concerned too. I have been for 10 years, but you know, Kevin Feige has proven to earn the benefit of the doubt until otherwise. So I'm hanging in there with him. I'm hanging in there with him for now. Thanks for adding that in Sam. Next up, Suthius writes, Hey guys. Okay. So the whole wish thing. Oh, here we go again. I saw it as Max Lord having the ability to, I'm just kidding. Uh, I'm not going to add anything to this wish debacle. We ended 2020 talking about Luke and began 2021 with wish Kate. <laughs> Gotta love movies sparking debate among us. Yeah, it's, it's true. And you know what? It's I'll, I'll take it again. I didn't think wonder woman was a complete disaster. I just thought it was a bad film. So whatever it is, what it is, but we did get to end 2020 on a high note from an entertainment, from a genre entertainment point of view with Mandalorian. Uh, I thought every episode in season two, because I loved Mandalorian season one, but I didn't love every episode. There was definitively an episode I actively disliked. And there was another episode that I thought could have been much better, but still overall, I loved it. But season two, literally, I loved every episode. Even the episode that a lot of people didn't like, the Ice Planet episode with frog lady. I love that episode. I don't care what anybody says. I thought that episode was great. By the way, that episode was directed by uh, Peyton Reed, who also directed the final episode with Luke. Same guy. I thought he did a fantastic. I thought the frog lady episode was fantastic. 
And I remember after that episode aired, a lot of people were like, oh, I didn't like that episode. And that's fine. I mean, I, I said that about one or two episodes of season one. It's it's fine to say that. But I just, I don't get it because I thought it was fun. I thought it was the first episode of The Mandalorian. Well, there were, they had done things that were exciting in Mandalorian, like the big city street fight at the end when all of the other uh, covert Mandalorians come out and help Mando in the streets in season one. That was an exciting episode. There was lots of exciting moments, but besides the fact of Frog Lady just being awesome and fun and charming, that whole sequence with the ice spiders, I've never felt like tension like that in Mandalorian before. Like it really straight up, it was thrilling. It, there was a horror. There was, I was scared, right? You're out the scared for the characters. You're on the edge of your seat and you're like, oh my God, how are they going to get out of this? And it's just, I thought it was a wonderful th- Bottom line is I loved every episode this season and uh, we were able indeed to end off the year on a high note unfortunate that wonder woman 84 couldn't kind of carry us over the threshold as well but and eh, is well i'll take it i'll take it. it is what it is all right an anonymous viewer writes happy new year to you and Anne. thank you so much have you seen the wonder woman pitch meeting skit on screen rant uh, it's basically a sketch that echoes your points but in hilarious fashion definitely check it out listen i've i've seen it i've seen it now look i'm, I'm gonna say something here screen rant used to be truly one of the great sites in the online fandom. Uh, Back when a guy, the guy who started Screen Rant, his name was Vic Holterman. And back in the day when Vic owned and still operated Screen Rant, it was truly one of the shining beacons in the online movie fan world. It's like one of the best websites out there. And uh, then Vic, and I don't blame him at all, he got an offer he couldn't refuse, and he sold Screen Rant for a decent amount of money. <laughs> I won't tell you how much money, but it's making John Campy a jealous kind of money that he was able to sell Screen Rant. Ever since then, to me, I can only speak for myself. The site itself has been in decline. Uh, it's not a place I go to really anymore very often. At least it used to be a place I would check on twice a day. Now, maybe a couple times a week, I'll peek in on. But that said, the one thing they do with incredible high-level consistency is their pitch meetings. Now, I suspect, I don't know this, it feels like they stole that idea for the pitch meetings from um, Jen. Oh, I'm forgetting Jen's last name now. I feel I feel bad about it, but it's Jen something or other. She did this video ages ago of a pitch meeting of, I think it was Star Wars, The Force Awakens. And she did like this pitch meeting. And I I think everything came from them. I don't know. For all I know, the Screen Rants one was around first. I simply don't know. Jenny um, Nichols? Jenny Nichols? I, I I can't remember her name now at any rate. But they consistently make those pitch meeting videos really fun. Like really fun. The Wonder Woman 84 one they just did. Um, I'm not going to lie to you, dude. I kind of had this, when I was watching it, I was like, these guys must watch my show. I mean, clearly they don't, but I'm just saying these guys must watch my show because everything they were bringing up were things that we've brought up on the show. But that aside, their delivery, their pitch, no pun intended of it is so funny. So funny. If So if you have not seen, uh, the pitch meeting for Wonder Woman 84, 
uh, done by Screen Rant, you should go watch it because it's really fun and really funny. And if you watch my show regularly, you're going to hear a lot of things in it that we've talked about here as well. But it's really great. They they just consist, like I said, they just consistently put make them really great. And it's it's the exact same formula they've been using for years now. Like, seriously, it is the exact same formula. You figure it would have gotten tired by now, but it's not. I still find it incredibly entertaining. Uh, anyway, Suthius writes, In the first movie, Ares conjured up all the electricity he could and shot it at Diana. She was able to harness it and shoot it and shoot back it. Probably meant shoot it back. I always attribute that to her being a demigod and Zeus's daughter. Hence, why she didn't get electrocuted when fighting Cheetah. Yeah, that's the one I've gone with as well. Like a lot of people bring up the questions, wait a minute, when the lightning stuff came, why did Cheetah get knocked out, but Wonder Woman didn't? I always kind of wrote it off to the fact that she was wearing that special golden armor. I thought that's what mitigated it. But the other one that really does make more sense is, oh yeah, she's Zeus's daughter. But if that's what caused Diana not to be affected by it, then it shouldn't have affected Cheetah either because she made the wish, I want to be like Diana. So if Diana's got that ability to have electricity not bother her. Then shouldn't that same thing happen to Cheetah? I don't know. Again, we're looking for something to make sense. I'll just go with the armor. I'm going to go with the armor. Maybe it was the armor that did it and mitigated that. All right. An anonymous viewer also writes, Patty Jenkins, Warner Brother changed the ending for Wonder Woman. Patty Jenkins, I met Warner Brothers as early as 2004, but they didn't know what to do with Wonder Woman. Patty Jenkins, Wonder Woman disliked Wonder Woman 84, a opening scene. Patty started to look like the type of director Kathleen Kennedy will fire after one week. Well, no, see, that's the thing. Like, I had somebody else wrote in, I think it was on earlier on today's show, on, on the John Campus show earlier. And I think they were saying, it might have been on one of the companion videos this weekend, but they were saying, you know, hearing about Warner Brothers wanting to interfere and, and take out, you know, the opening scene of Wonder Woman 84. I wonder if that's where things started to go south. And, and what I said is you got to understand that happens in every movie, practically. I'm sure there are exceptions, but it's what they call in the industry getting notes, right? Remember, the movie is the studios. It's the studio's movie. They commission it. They pay for it. It's their movie. They have the right. It's their movie. The director is but making the movie for them. And so on every movie, um, directors get what they call notes. They'll get notes from the studio, sometimes forceful saying, take that out. And sometimes, you know, we're kind of unsure about this. Do you think maybe you should take this out? And the director, maybe will take it out and the director, maybe won't. But, but these type, that types of communications happens with every movie. Movie making is collaborative. And so what I said is like, don't be thrown off by Patty Jenkins talking about how, oh, they, they thought about taking out this one scene and I didn't want to take out that scene. That is, that is standard daily operational business on any movie set, you know? Warner Brothers wanting to make a change at the end of wanting to do the ending of Wonder Woman, the first Wonder Woman movie, a little bit differently, standard operating procedure. Where you get into the Kathleen Kennedy stuff with the drama between her and her directors is like the movies have been completely unlike what she wanted. It's not like, oh, this scene could be different or, oh, that character could be different. It's like, let's take the Lord and Miller, for example. And everybody knows I love Lord and Miller. I love Lord and Miller. Um, but... The reality is they committed to Kathleen Kennedy and, uh, and Lawrence 
that they were going to make Solo a certain movie. This is what we're going to make. We're going to make this movie, Solo. It's going to have this tone. It's going to be handled this way. And this is the movie we're making with Solo. And then they went kind of behind their backs and made a completely different kind of Solo movie. Kathleen Kennedy did not make sure that they fully were on the same page with her and that she was fully on the same page with them. And they ended up making a movie that was completely unlike what she wanted. That's what's happened more often than not. It's not about, oh, like every movie, all of your favorite movies has a scene or two that the studio wanted changed and had changed. Maybe a couple scenes they wanted changed that didn't get changed, you know, all that kind of stuff. And you better believe that happens in the MCU. It absolutely happens in the MCU all the time. Um, but it's, again, it's nothing big, like little things like that. Nothing big, a scene here and there, nothing. That's every single day, standard operating procedure. All right. Corey with the K writes, Hey John, one of the gripes you had against Wonder Woman 84 was flight. I watched it again. She didn't fly. She used the lasso to swing off clouds. Uh, then lassoed a plane. Uh, the plane got her high, uh, then, like the story, she started falling with style, then lassoed the thunder. Nah, she flew. And if, if at the end of the day, Caddy, uh, Caddy Jenkins, Caddy Jenkins, if at the end of the day, Patty Jenkins says she didn't actually fly, then I'm going to say that you made it misleading. Because there were points in the film where she literally was not like falling with style. She was literally doing this without the lasso and, and doing the old Christopher Reeve Superman pose as she's doing this. She was flying. Yes, also lassoing, which made me wonder why she lassoing lightning and all that kind of stuff, but whatever. So Patty Jenkins may come out and say, actually, we weren't, we weren't saying that she could actually fly. Fine, but the eyeball test was she was flying because she wasn't doing this while doing this pose. She was doing this while doing this pose. That was the implied message of it, right? And that's fine. That's fine. Because, you know, in the comic books, in, in a certain iterations of the comic books, the modern iteration of the comic books, Wonder Woman can fly. So I got, I got no real beef with that, other than the fact that it breaks sort of canon with what we know about Wonder Woman from Batman versus Superman. But then again, they've already broke five or six other points of canon with that one, so it doesn't really matter. So I'm fine either way. But yeah, the movie was showing her flying. If she had done a lasso and then started dropping like a rock, and as she was dropping like a rock was doing this going downwards, I could see your point. But she was literally doing this while doing the old Christopher Reeve pose, right? I mean, she was flying. She was flying. Anyway, uh, Stubble McShave writes, Patty Jenkins' interview on Mark Maron's podcast was fascinating. I love Mark Maron's podcast. Uh, there seemed to have been 50 cooks in the kitchen with 30 different scripts. She claims the studio took over the movie and lays the blame on them for the disjointed film. Uh, check out the interview. I have not seen, I've not seen or heard that. I have not seen or heard that. Um, at all. And I, I'm sorry, but... Everybody knows I really like Patty Jenkins, but at the end of the day, you're the director in the director's chair. It's your responsibility. It's your responsibility. You got to take whatever directives the studio throws at you, and it's your job to then make something coherent out of it. It's like, look, I go back to Spider-Man 3, not the new one coming, but the Sam Raimi Spider-Man 3 with Venom and Thomas Hayden Church as Sandman. You know, I love Sam Raimi. I think he's great. I'm so excited for his Doctor Strange movie. But 
there are a lot of people who try to deflect any responsibility from Sam, from Sam Raimi for what happened with Spider-Man three and said it was the studio's fault. It was studio interference. They made him put venom in it. Therefore that movie being bad is the studio's fault to which my reply is, then why didn't he just make a good movie with venom? There you go. Listen, a lot of directors, most directors get handed the material from the studio. They get handed the material and they then it's their job to take that material and whatever notes they have and go and create a movie out of that. And at the end of the day, it is the director's responsibility to make something solid and coherent out of whatever it is they've got given at the end of the day from the studio and which direction to go. And again, I'm not saying that there aren't some times that it's more challenging than the others, maybe even Herculean at times. But at the end of the day, we all rush, as we should, to heap a lot of praise on directors when the movies go well. But if we're going to do that, we also have to say, because guess what? There were other directors who were given bigger messes than you were, and they made great films out of it. So if we're going to rush to give credit to the directors, and we should, then we also have to say, hey, you know, this one's on them. And I'm a big Patty Jenkins fan. I'm a huge Patty Jenkins fan. But you know what? Wonder Woman, sorry, this was a bad day at the office for Patty Jenkins. And regardless, and I don't want to hear the excuses. I don't want to hear them. There are a lot of directors who have to deal with a lot of pressures from studios and things like that. These are movies and projects that are in the hundreds of millions of dollars. A billion dollars could be on the line. Yeah, you want that kind of glory? Then you got to take that kind of pressure. And taking that pressure means when it goes great, you're going to get a lot, a lot of credit. And you're going to get a lot of adulation and well-deserved. But when it goes bad, suck it up and say, yeah, yeah, this one, bad day at the office. I, di I didn't bring it this one. Like a good NFL coach, when a game goes bad, don't say, my quarterback didn't play well. Or, man, our special teams are terrible. No, you stand up there, the good coaches stand up there and say, hey, I got out coached today. I didn't, uh, I didn't prepare our team enough, clearly. We didn't prepare right. We got outplayed. That's on me. That's what a good coach does when things go badly. And I think... Uh, I think a director needs to stand up and say, hey, yeah, there, there were, yeah, everybody can make excuses. You can all make excuses all you want. Bottom line is Patty Jenkins was the one in the director's chair and she wasn't able to take whatever convoluted mess she was getting from the studio and manifest it into something that was a good, solid, watchable, makes sense logically kind of movie. And I'm not worried about it. As a fan of Patty Jenkins, I'm not worried about it. I totally believe she's going to learn from that lesson. You know, Bill Belichick has lost football games. She's going to learn from that lesson. She's going to learn from the mistakes she made with Wonder Woman 84. And I believe she's going to give us the best Wonder Woman movie yet when we get to Wonder Woman 3. But the responsibility falls at her feet. Lots of blame to go around. But if you're the director, you're the one that's got to stand up there and say, yeah, this one's on me. Because every director has excuses for when movies go bad. Every director has legitimate excuses for when any movie goes bad. But I really believe that the best ones are the ones that are going to stand up and go, yeah, that one's on me. That one's on me.
That, I mean, that's, I think that's just the way it's got, but I am curious to hear this, this one. I have not heard this uh, podcast. I will have to go and check it out for sure. Stubble McShave. Thanks for pointing, uh, pointing me in its direction. All right. Joanna uh, Ada writes, or Jonathan, Jonathan Ada writes, uh, will either one by itself or a combo of the Snyder cut living up to the hype and movie theaters still unable to open this year be enough to pressure slash force Disney into releasing an MCU film onto Disney plus if so, then will Sony let Disney stream Spider-Man three. Um, one has, listen, I can tell you right now, nothing Warner brothers does tremendously badly or tremendously with excellence. Nothing Warner Brothers does will influence what Disney does. Disney takes care of its own business. They make their own mistakes and they make their own successes, but they are not influenced by what anybody else does. Snyder Cut is not going to alter the, is not going to be some sort of tectonic shift uh, that alters the landscape of the way this whole thing is going to go. Uh, so no. And, and by the way, uh, Snyder Cut could be a huge monumental failure and it's not going to change what streaming plans Disney has for other films. E- either way, whatever happens with Snyder Cut is going to have absolutely no impact on what Disney does at all. They're going to do their own thing. They're going to make their own brilliant moves. They're going to make their own stupid moves, but they're going to make them themselves based on their own plans. And so, uh, yeah, there's that. As far as, you know, I don't think there's any chance Sony lets Disney put Spider-Man three on Disney plus and not theatrically Uh, as of right now. Look, a lot of people are looking at April, May, June as when theaters could really be back up and running again. And depending on how fast they can get vaccines out and if they can get that, um, those, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Those supply issues worked out then, you know, maybe, well, we could. If the logistics work out, then maybe April, May, June, yeah, we're back up and running again. But almost every model I've seen uh, is like November, which is when I think Spider-Man 3 is supposed to come out, November. Yeah, now look, if the world is still in the grip of a pandemic in November, then we've got a lot bigger problems than when when Spider-Man 3 is coming out. (laughs) Right. Like we have got much, much bigger problems because there was supposed to have been a a vaccine. If we are still in the dire grips of a pandemic come November, we got bigger problems than Spider-Man three. But theoretically speaking, yeah, if all the theaters still shut down come November, then maybe Sony will look for a way. But Sony could make a deal with Netflix to put the movie on Netflix. I'm sure they would give Disney plus the chance to equal any offer. Like I'm sure if Netflix offered 300 million to put Spider-Man three on Netflix, then Disney plus, if they just match that offer, I'm sure they would go with Disney plus considering the tie in with the MCU. But but look, the reality is that is highly unlikely scenario. Theaters will be, if theaters, you know, whatever theaters are left, theaters will be up and running again by November. How healthy they'll be, who knows? But uh, and Sony will not allow Disney. By the way, Disney doesn't want to take it and put it on thing. Disney still wants to make those billions of dollars in theaters and then get people to sign up for Disney Plus afterwards. They want both and. That's what a lot of people keep like. People keep talking as if they only have they have one choice. They got they got two things they got to choose between: either put it in theaters or put it on Disney Plus. No, there is an option where you get both and. 
you get to get the benefits of making $700 million in the box office and then later putting it on Disney Plus and still reaping the benefits of it being on Disney Plus. You get both. That's the way Disney would like for this to continue. Uh, but, but we'll see. Like, there's so many theoreticals attached to that, Jonathan, about where's the world going to be in June, let alone in November. But all things being equal and things going the way they should go, no chance, no chance, unless something fundamentally changes in the world, no chance Sony just says, oh, yeah, just go ahead and put it up on, uh, put it up on Disney Plus. Go ahead. I don't see them doing that. I don't see them doing that. <laughs> but crazier things have happened, have they not? We live in a world where Jamie Foxx is Electro. Go figure. All right. Andy Newton writes, uh, late to the party, but I finally got to see Logan. Wow. What a movie. Yeah. Best. Like it's a top three best comic book movie of all time to me, uh, which led me to ask, how do studios deal with children, with, uh, children actors? Do they get to be at the premiere? Uh, how can they judge their performance if they're too young to watch their own movies? Well, I mean, here's the thing that's up to the parents. That's up to the parents. Um, yes. Kids can go to the premieres of their own films. There's no law. By the way, listen, the MPA rating system, you know, PG, PG-13, R, NC-17, whatever, there's, there's no law, like actual law, that says those mean anything. Those are guidelines. Those are guidelines that theater, movie theaters can choose to enforce. And because they want to be responsible to, you know, the last thing a movie theater wants is to have an angry, you know, 47-year-old dad with a baseball bat show up to the manager's office at a movie theater saying, why did you let my eight-year-old daughter in this smut-filled NC-17 movie? That's the last thing movie theaters want to deal with. So for the most part, they honor those things, but those aren't laws. Those aren't laws. You know, you have a private screening, you you do a premiere, a private screening thing. You can, anybody can come in that you want to let in. Anybody can come in that you want to let in. Now, obviously there's like, you get into exceptions when you get into pornography and things like that. But if we're talking just general standard movies, yeah, even our rated ones, by the way, in the United States, R means you can still get in if you're a minor. It just means you have to be an accompanied by an adult. So then it's up to the parents to decide, hey, it's cool that you're in this movie, but we don't actually want you watching it. That seems a little odd to me, but that's up to the parents to decide, right? That's up to the parents to decide. So there's really not an issue. There's no issue there. So uh, yeah, if you're a kid, like what was that Seth Rogen film that he just did with uh, the bad kids, bad kids where they're like young. I can't remember the name of it, but it was really funny where it's just like totally R rated, but it's being made with these kids. Yeah, they could totally go to their own premiere. You know, AMC theaters may not let them in for a regular screening since it's rated R. Well, that's AMC's choice. But at the premiere, they can totally let them into the premiere. There's no issue there. All right. And yes, Logan is one of the great, greatest films of the past 10 years. One of the best films of the last two, 10 years. It was, it was the first comic book movie in history to be nominated for the best screenplay Oscar. No comic book movie before it had ever been nominated for that, for that major award of best screenplay. And Logan did. Logan got that nomination. And I I would contend that it was Logan getting that nomination that later opened the door for other films like Black Panther and what have you uh, also get nominations and Joker to get nominations because I think because of Logan, I think Logan was that kind of bust the dam open. But anyway, that's just I, I could go on about Logan for a long time. OK, let's see. 
Uh, Luke one writes, uh, part one. Hi, John question. I've had some experience on YouTube over the last few years and recently created a new channel with my brother to discuss topics, uh, TV to, to discuss topics, TV books, and movies with under five of views. However, our channel was taken down with no notice and no warning. The prompt email stated that it went against community guidelines under spam, scam, and deceptive material, but I assure that that's not the case. I tried to appeal stating that we are not notified of any wrongdoing in the first place, uh, and we would have immediately amended any apparent wrongdoing. Yes, they would not even give us the, spe- the specifics. I'd like to take action and get my work back, but I'm just very disheartened. I spent hours of time just trying to make good, wholesome content. Thanks. Luke, um, I wish I had better news for you. I, I wish I had better news for you. Now, I am not an American lawyer. I, I cannot, so, so take anything I say to you as a complete layman, all right? Just to be clear about that. But there is an inherent risk that all of us take. Look, you have to understand, rewind back a bit. When I started doing the movie blog, and I started doing video on the movie blog, it was before YouTube existed. And it was a beast of an undertaking to try to host your videos. You had to upload your videos to your own web hosting service. And then the bandwidth when back then it still is today, but particularly back then you had to pay for the bandwidth and, and people watching one video could be equal to a million people reading a blog post right? For somebody watching one video that could equal the bandwidth of a million people reading a blog post on your thing. I mean, so it was brutal. I remember there were several times back in the movie blog days that my entire site got shut down because I exceeded my bandwidth limits and I had to go in and get it restated and I had to pay more. And the amount of money I was paying on for web hosting was, was crazy. It was crazy. Along came YouTube which to many of us was considered an absolute godsend. An absolute godsend. Because like, wait a minute, we could upload our videos for free and it could be watched as many times as it's watched and there's no bandwidth limits? I think a lot of people today fail to appreciate what a crazy service that is. That is a crazy service. It is nuts. As a matter of fact, with all the money YouTube generates, YouTube is a money loser every year for Google. YouTube loses the money just because the amount of bandwidth is crazy. And so here's the problem. When you rely on a free service, you are accepting certain risks. Like when I pay for a service, I have a number of things that I can reliably expect from them because we, it's in a contract. It's in a term of service. I am paying for a certain service. I deserve to get a certain things. I deserve to be notified of this, that, and the other thing. When you're using a free service, you're really at their mercy. You're really at their mercy. Honestly, while YouTube has been very, very good to me, you know, um, I, I just bought a house. 
YouTube's been very good to me. I don't want to sound hypocritical and pretend it hasn't. It has. It has been very good to me. But if you guys have followed me for any period of time, you guys know there have been several times over the years that I've even wondered out loud to you guys. I'm trying to think of an alternative way of doing my show not using YouTube. Because the reality is, as long as my show is on YouTube, I am literally at their mercy. Because it's a free service. They don't owe me anything. YouTube owes me nothing except the money that I generate via ads. That they owe me. But other than that, they owe me nothing. They could shut down my channel tomorrow if they wanted to. They And, and here's the thing. You can get these notices from this that, that says, you know, your site's been taken down because of X violation and X violation. And guess what? They are under no obligation, as far as I understand, they're under no obligation to even respond to you or to give you a reason or an explanation why. These are the inherent risks we take by using a free service. These are the inherent risks we take using a free service. And um, I, and that's why, I, I like I said, Luke, when I read, as soon as I finished reading your message, my first thought was, I wish I had better news for you. But I don't. I, I think you might just be out of luck. Um, now there are other online services you could use. Uh, Vimeo is a very good service, but to really use it a lot, you got to pay for it. But by paying for it, you're getting some benefits that you don't get by using YouTube. So there's, there's a lot of things to, to have in there, but yeah, this is the type of thing. Like one of the biggest things you'll ever hear YouTubers complain about is YouTube. I mean, that, that, that's that's the irony of it. The number one thing that YouTubers complain about is YouTube. But it, again, it is such a ridiculous... Like, listen, I do a little over 4 million views a month of my videos, right? If I was having to do that on, my, on, a, on a web hosting service that I had to pay for myself, oh my God. I would be in the tens of thousands of dollars a month that I would have to pay for a hosting service. Tens of thousands of dollars a month that I would have to pay. And I get that service from YouTube for free. But free is never free. Free always comes with a cost. And uh, unfortunately, the experience you're having right now is one of those things. And it's, it's unfortunate. I wish YouTube would would figure out a better, more equitable way to deal with this stuff. But it's just the situation we're in. But listen, do me a favor, Luke. If you if you have any more progress or any more developments in your situation, do me a favor and email me at john at the johncampiashow.com. That's john at the johncampiashow.com. If you have any more developments happen, I, I'd like to hear your story because I hope it turns out for you. I really do because that sounds like a bum deal, man. All right, next up, we've got K Major who writes, one of five. Okay, here we go. Long one, John. All right, here we go. I wished it played out this way. Diana confronts Lord first, giving him the speech, helping him realize his love for his son, blah, blah, blah. And he renounces his wish, thus setting the stage for Cheetah to fight Diana for the stone itself. That's a good idea. Uh, two of five. Uh, Cheetah needs the stone to remain the way she is, so it's a lengthy fight. While the world deteriorates around them and Lord fights to get his son, culminating in Diana finally defeating Cheetah and destroying the stone at the same time uh, as Lord saves 
as Lord saves his son from whatever is happening in the area. But everything disappears due to the stone's destruction, leaving Barbara an emotional wreck vowing revenge on Diana. Opening the door for a god to appear and her promise to and promise to give her what she once had to get revenge for both of them. The end. Uh, the way the film plays out makes it as if everyone on the planet are selfless and good. That's pretty, but unrealistic. In the real world, there are good people and bad people. That's the real truth. The fight for truth is still ongoing. Should have ended with Wonder Woman seeing the good, but also still fighting for that truth. This is a universe where a nuke was fired at Superman. Billy Batson was abandoned by his mom and Batman wrecked shop. Just my idea. Now, no, I listen. There are so many. First of all, yes, absolutely. We've talked on the show about the notion that one of the things they could have done, nay, maybe even should have done, was to have the God, whoever the God is, because I don't think they name him in the movie, whoever the God was that created the stone at the end of the movie appear to Barbara. You know, I even just talked about this earlier today and said, you know, I, I admire your hatred of Diana. I will work with me, commit yourself to me, and I will give you the power to relinquish this world of that pestilence, Diana. Ha, 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 ha. And then he turns her into Cheetah and whatever. Now, of course, there's a problem with that. In the first Wonder Woman movie, they said all the gods are dead, but whatever. That could have potentially solved a lot of problems. The one problem, though, K-Major, that I see, the one problem that I see is that it could leave the world in a place where the entire world resents Wonder Woman. Because if the world didn't fully grasp the consequences of the wish stone, and all of a sudden just Diana destroyed the stone, and all the things they had wished for was taken away from them, for example, the parent of a terminally ill child who wished for health for their child, and now their kid's dying again and dies, you could find, or a dude who wished to, that the girl of his dreams would fall in love with them, or whatever whatever it is, you would now have a world resentful of Diana and hate Diana because common sense be damned, right? We see that in our world today. Common sense be damned. Um, but yeah, but still that, what you just laid out, K-Major, would have been better. What you just laid out yourself would have been better. And yes, the, the cheetah scene should have been the final fight. If you're going to have cheetah in a Wonder Woman movie, you make that the last big fight. You make that the last big fight. Y- you don't have a fight with cheetah be this short little preliminary fight so Wonder Woman can get to the true objective, which is then to confront Maxwell Lord. I, I agree. They should have figured out, in, done the story in such a way that it ended with her needing to fight Barbara. I, and I, I'm in 100% uh, 100% in agreement with you on that. Okay, next up we've got Jackson Perez writes, In Age of Ultron, Ultron is in everything. However, in the movie, when talking to Dr. Cho about vibranium, he says, The world's most versatile element... And they used it to make a Frisbee. Does this mean Ultron couldn't get into Wakandan tech? Um, that's an interesting question. Well, you got to remember when, when Age of Ultron came out, they had 
they this was them just first introducing Wakanda. I don't think they had fully fleshed it out yet. Like there are a lot of times that certain elements in movies and movie universes and franchises get introduced when they haven't really got the full idea about what that thing is going to be is fully fleshed out. So I don't think they had the full script for Black Panther and the full idea about what Black Panther would do in Civil War and what he would do in Avengers and all that kind of stuff. So I I don't know, it's an interesting question, but I'm going to I'm going to guess yes. I'm going to guess the one thing he couldn't penetrate was maybe Wakandan technology because Ultron ultimately was based on modern tech. But remember, Wakanda is several decades ahead of the rest of the world. So maybe that's a way they could explain it. It's a great question, Jason. Well, well thought out and well asked. But that's my best guess. The fact that Ultron, as advanced as he was, was basically constructed on modern tech, whereas Wakanda was so far ahead that it would be different from all the rest of the world's tech. So but again, I'm just speculating as a fan. I don't really know. It's a great question, man. All right. Next up, we go to Ryan Holman, who writes. Theory. I think there is a chance the X-Men are created by Tony Snap. His big thing was the Earth's protection. And in his mind, what better way to protect the, the world than to have more powerful people in it? I know it's complicated. What do you think about it? Well, no, we got to remember, Tony Snap didn't do anything other than kill Thanos and his army. That's the only thing Tony Snap did. A lot of people think, you know, oh, remember when Tony's snap undid everything Thanos did? No, actually, that was Hulk snap that undid everything. It was Hulk snap that brought everybody back. Tony's snap was to get rid of Thanos and his army. There wasn't anything beyond that. And remember, Kevin Feige already had Endgame planned out before he even knew he got X-Men. So... I think the billion-dollar question is still about what are they going to do to bring in X-Men? It is worth noting that we just had the Disney shareholder event, and they announced all the MCU movies and all the Star Wars movies and all the Pixar things, and they still have not mentioned X-Men. They mentioned Fantastic Four, but that's still a ways off. But they still haven't even mentioned X-Men. So that coupled with the fact that when they first got... Uh, the the Fox properties and Disney. Remember, it was three years ago that Kevin Feige said when the news first came out that Disney was making a play to take over Fox, that Kevin Feige said, you know, hey, would you implement X-Men and Fantastic Four right away? And Kevin Feige said, no, I got a five-year plan right now and we're not going to mess with that. And by the time Fantastic Four comes out, it will have been over five years since he said that. So I don't think, I don't think X-Men coming into the MCU. I'm not even, by the way, I'm not even a thousand percent sure that the X-Men will be in the MCU proper. I, I, I don't know for sure, but we'll have to wait to see how they play that out. But I don't think, and I'm only speculating, I don't think it'll have anything to do with the snaps. I don't think it'll have anything to do with the Infinity Stones. I think they're going to find some other mechanism to do it. What that mechanism is right now, I have no idea, but it's a possibility. We'll have to wait and see. All right. Thanks for that, Ryland. All right. Next up, Rob Tari writes, not sure if this theory holds merit, but Feige confirmed Doctor Strange leads into Spider-Man 3. Uh, Raimi is directing Doctor Strange. Do you think there will be any post credit scene that sets up Maguire's Spidey stuff? Or maybe he he consulted uh, on Spider-Man 3. Uh, here's the thing. I, I could be wrong about this, 
but I'm fairly positive we got that the other way around. Doctor Strange does not lead into Spider-Man 3. Uh, Doctor Strange comes after Spider-Man 3. So let me just... Uh, Strange and the Multiverse of Madness uh, release date. I believe it's in 2022. Yeah, Multiverse of Madness is released in March of 2022, which will be four or five months after Spider-Man 3. So Spider-Man 3 comes first, right? Spider-Man 3, WandaVision, and Doctor Strange and the Multiverse of Madness. Kevin Feige, yes, confirmed they're all kind of one interconnected story, but it's important to know the order in which it's happening. WandaVision comes first. That launches in 11 days. Very excited about that. Then in November, we get Spider-Man 3. And then in March of 2022, we get Doctor Strange and the Multiverse of Madness. Um, anyway, so you say, will there be any post credit scene that sets up Maguire Spidey stuff or maybe consulted on Spider-Man 3? So yeah, unfortunately, that would be a possibility if Doctor Strange and the Multiverse of Madness was coming out first, but it is not. Spider-Man 3 is coming out first. So that kind of takes that possibility away, I suppose. Thanks for writing, Rob. All right, next up. Uh, James Wars writes, Hey, John. I don't think Warner's has any money to make compromise. Let me try this again. I don't think Warner's has any money to make compromising deals for its talent. Wonder Woman 2 not making big money and there's not enough HBO subscriptions. I think Warner's are just going to give in, take back its deal and deal with the awkward embarrassment. Oh, don't think for a second Warner Brothers doesn't have the money. They have the money. I mean, look, we often talk about how we as film fans sometimes have this uh, misconception that studios just have all the money in the world. That is not the case. But they do have a lot of money. Not to mention, Warner's now owned by a bigger company in AT&T. So they have the money to make those deals. If they believe that making those deals is financially the best move for them. There is still a possibility, James. Look, look. I have very little doubt a lot of Warner Brothers 2021 films are going to debut on HBO Max. I also feel very certainly that not all of them are, like they said they would. Like, I believe, like, the, the word is already out that it's already being negotiated that Dune will get a theatrical release instead of HBO Max. And I think there will be others. I think there will be others. But there are going to have to be some deals that get made. And they are in a position to make those deals. They are in a position to make those deals. So I don't think that's going to slow them up, James. I really don't. But uh, again, it's going to be, they really have backed themselves into a corner with the way they handled that whole situation, which was just dreadful. They completely botched handling that situation. Going behind your financial partners' backs and your creative talents' backs and everybody who has vested interest in those movies' backs and making some public announcement and not letting anybody have an opinion and not letting, not even letting people know. Legendary Pictures put up 75% of the money that it costs to make Godzilla versus Kong and put up 75% of the money that it cost to make Dune. And Warner Brothers didn't even talk to them. Didn't even talk to them about making this sweeping announcement. All of our movies are going to be going straight to HBO Max, leaving, you know, leaving Legendary to go, excuse me, what? And a lot of filmmakers that had contracts Contracts are thrown out the window. It, it, they By botching that so badly, they have backed themselves into a corner. And I think one of the more interesting movie stories of 2021 is going to be to see how this all resolves itself. But a part of that resolution, whatever that resolution is, it's going to have to involve a lot of, you know, wheeling and dealing by Warner Brothers 
uh, to compensate some of these people. And some of them will still go to theater. Some of them still go to HBO Max. But there's going to be a lot of deals that have to be made, James, for sure. All right. Next up, uh, we've got MD rights. One thing people always forget when fan casting is, one, whether the actor even wants to do it, and two, whether they even can. Like, what if John Krasinski doesn't want to play Reed Richards? What if Emily Blunt got pregnant and couldn't? Way too much expectation. Well, I mean, yeah, there's that. But remember, at the end of the day, actors want to work. And at any given time, there's only a really a handful of actors in the world that have their pick of any project they want to do, right? A lot of us think that once an actor becomes famous, they can just pick any movie they want to be in. And that's not true. That's not true. I mean, I spoke recently with, uh, recently, like about six months ago, seven months ago, I spoke with a well-known actor um, who told me, you know, some stories about, yeah, and there's this project, and I really want to get on that project. And there's this other one that I'm super interested in, and, you know, the last four or five that I really wanted to be in, I wasn't able to get on, and blah, blah, I was like, they want to be in movies, too. They want to work. You know, I, I, I'm re- reminded again of that conversation I had with Michael Douglas, and and he was, and when I was asking, you know, why, what made this movie one that you agreed to be a part of it? He said, look, I'm an actor for hire. It's my job. You know, if you've got a role that you think I'm good for and that I will be a, 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 a benefit to your movie, you think I'd be an addition to your movie? You'd think I'd, I'd be bring value to your movie and you want to hire me for my rate? I am here to serve. You know, I'm here to act. So I don't think it's often a worry that the actor wouldn't want to be a part of it. I mean, unless you're Daniel Day-Lewis or Russell Crowe or some of these actors who don't audition and don't ask to be in movies, you know, you ask them to be in their movies. But I mean, to me, the biggest problem with fan casting remains to this day that when we as fans are doing our fan casting, we are casting the roles for the way we imagine the roles in our heads you and I have not read, like, let's say Fantastic Four, right? We know John Watts, director of the the new Spider-Man movies, he's going to be directing Fantastic Four. So whenever you hear people doing fan casting about who should play Johnny Storm, who should play Ben Grimm, who should play Reed Richards, what they're doing is they're picking actors that fit the idea of those characters that they have in their heads, But we haven't read the script. We don't know if the actors we're casting for the roles in our heads would actually be a good fit for the way they're written in the script. Right? Because, listen, I I guarantee you, when people found out that Christopher Nolan was doing another Batman movie after, you know, uh, Batman Begins, and this one was going to have Joker in it, nobody was fan casting Heath Ledger. Nobody was fan casting Heath Ledger. Everybody has their own idea about what Joker should be like. And so then they were casting, you know, they were doing fan castings of actors who were good fits for the Joker they had in their head. But none of us had read Christopher Nolan's Dark Knight script. We didn't know how the Joker would be in the movie. And so it was pointless. And ain't nobody was fan casting Heath Ledger. So what happened? When they cast Heath Ledger, everybody got upset. 
but we got upset at the fact that we didn't actually know the character. And then when we saw the movie, we were like, oh my God, Heath Ledger was born to play that. Oh my God, he was born to play that. That was so good, you know? And that's the thing. And that's why when people ask me, John, do you think X actor should play X role? I often take a pass on that. So the only thing I worry about, and you guys have heard me say this before, the only thing I concern myself with is, is the actor in question a good actor? If the actor in question is a good actor, then I'll just leave the rest to the casting people. I Because they have read the script. They know what kind of actor they need for that character. I don't. I might have an idea of the character, but I haven't read the script, so I don't know the way the character comes across in this movie. And for all I know, the person I would pick would be a terrible fit for it. So that's kind of why I, le- I, I stay away from the fan casting stuff. But I don't think it's, I don't generally think the issue though is that, oh, what if they don't want the role? I think eight times out of 10, they'll want the role. But uh, you're right. Availability is also a big thing. What happens if when they're shooting, you know, if they really wanted Emily Blunt, uh, let me go on a limb and say this. If they really wanted the novelty, of having the married couple, John Krasinski and Emily Blunt, playing uh, Reed Richards and Sue Storm. And Emily Blunt was pregnant during a thing. They would work around that. For, for that, if that was important to them, they would work around it. So I don't know that that would be a big problem, MD. All right, next up. Othello writes, Does Luke's willingness to train Grogu show one of his major flaws as a Jedi? Even Ahsoka thought it was a bad idea to train Grogu due to fear of him joining the dark side. Maybe that's why Luke failed Ben uh, by not addressing his initial dark side signs. I no, I don't think I don't think that's a problem. Look, Luke had a very specific mandate. Luke was now in an era that was very different from the era that Ahsoka was in when she was a part of the Jedi Order. There was a Jedi Order. That's the big difference. There was a Jedi order and she saw it fall and she saw it crumble. Luke is in a very different place. Luke is now of the notion that he's got to rebuild the Jedi order. And on top of that, he understood part of that was this child needed protecting. That's why one of the things that he says to Din or Mando was, I'll protect this child with my life. He understands the importance of protecting that child. The child being as potentially strong in the force as it is, that child needs to be protected. So, yeah, I don't, I don't really see it as a part of that. But again, there's an interesting dichotomy when you look at Luke, the self-assured, almost arrogant, almost arrogant Luke that we saw in, in the final episode of Mandalorian, right? There was almost a little bit of an arrogance about him. And that type of of self-assuredness, that type of maybe even arrogance, that can lead you to great disillusionment if something goes wrong, hence the Luke we get in The Last Jedi. And I'm actually a big fan of the Luke we got in Last Jedi because I thought it was a very deep character study of what happens when somebody who's so self-assured and to the board, to borderline arrogance, when something goes drastically wrong, what does that do to you? What kind of disillusionment does that cause? So I don't know. I I think in the context of the story, Luke taking Grogu was the natural thing to do. And maybe that was symptomatic of some future problems Luke would have, perhaps. But, hey, you know, even Obi-Wan, he had Vader turn on him. So it happens. It happens. It's a risk of training Jedi, I suppose. All right, Pat 
Deary writes, Hey, John and Rob. Rob's not, who's not with me right now, obviously. Uh, about Wonder Woman 84, what did you guys think about the invisible jet scene? I thought it was forced and pretty unnecessary to achieve fan service. Uh, it just felt uh, felt random, and she learned how to do that. Thoughts? Yeah, well, I've, I've shared my thoughts on this many times, but I'll, I'll mention it again. I have two minds on the jet scene. On the one hand, it was very cool having the invisible jet. And also, it was a beautiful scene, visually, and the character moments between Diana and Steve on the plane was actually really quite touching and and quite nice and quite warm. And then it was just visually beautiful, like them flying above the clouds as the fireworks went off underneath. It was gorgeous. It was gorgeous to look at. Now, of course, it came with a couple of problems. Number one, Steve Trevor is a pilot, but he flew a plane in 1917. He does. That's like saying, oh yeah, this guy knew how to use an abacus back in 1930. So he should have no problem turning on a MacBook pro and know how to do the calculations in the MacBook pro. It really is that type of jarring jump. Like just because Steve Trevor could fly a plane in 1917 does not know he knows, does not mean he knows how to operate a, a hundreds of million dollars piece of modern technology machinery, but he just got in. Oh yeah. Oh, uh, here's the power. Uh, here's the, the thrust. Okay. Yeah, I'm good. I can fly this plane. And then out of nowhere, it's like, wait a minute. Diana suddenly has this magic trick. She has the power to turn things invisible. Really? She has the power just to turn things invisible. Well, wouldn't that have been handy in the end of the movie? Turning herself invisible? Wouldn't that have come in handy? How about turning Steve invisible when they break into the White House? Wouldn't that have been a good trick? Just all of a sudden, she can. She has the magic power of turning things invisible, and then it's never mentioned again. It's like, wouldn't, wouldn't that theoretically come in like real handy? And a number of situations that came in the movie. So yes, it. I have two minds in the scene. On the one hand, there's some very touching, warm moments in it. It's visually beautiful. Uh, that flying over the fireworks thing was gorgeous, and I loved it. But it was accompanied by some big problems like, wow, we have a problem. They're going to find us. I know. Let's say Wonder Woman has the magic power to just turn random things invisible. Okay. And of course, Steve suddenly being able to fly the plane. Yeah, it's, it's problematic, Pat. It's problematic, no doubt. All right. Big A writes and tips in $20. Thank you, Big A, for supporting the channel on that level, man. Kim's convenience seems to play up a lot of racial stereotypes, don't you think? Uh, Sneaky Asian uh, being one that they use a lot. Sneak attack. Why is this okay? Oh, because because it's not playing a racial stereotype. It's not playing. It's playing an interrelationship stereotype. It's playing an interrelationship stereotype that it's a stereotype in that particular relationship. Mrs. Kim sneak attack. I, it's just one of the great lines. So no, I, I, I never thought for one second when I watched the show, I never once thought they were playing a racial stereotype in that, like not once. And I hope you're not confusing, you know, what could have been a Japanese racial stereotype with this family that is not Japanese characters. This is, these are Korean characters, which is a completely different group of people. So yeah, no, I never once saw that. And and by the way, there are certain stereotypes 
come from uh, there are certain stereotypes are stereotypes for a reason. I personally in normal, I don't think this applies to the Kim's convenience situation, but under a lot of situations, I have no problems utilizing stereotypes. My problem becomes leveraging negative stereotypes. So for instance, you want to show a traditional Italian family and say, wow, they love their pasta. Okay. Is that a bit of a stereotype? Yes. But as somebody who comes from an Italian family, I can tell you de de definitively that's kind of accurate. Yes, it's a stereotype, but it's also accurate. And it's also true. We love our, I, I, my, whenever I would go to my no, 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 it was handmade, homemade pasta. And it's to you know, something I love to this day. Is that a bit of a stereotype? Sure. But it's also based on a real truth. Where it gets irritating and questionable is when you take negative stereotypes and base entire characters on those. And there's a lot of movies that do that, but Kim's Convenience was neither. To be honest with you, to me, Kim's Convenience was absolutely neither. So that's just my take on it. All right. Lobster Johnson writes, hey, John, uh, I love how you say, hey, John, in the same way every time. Anyways, uh, what's the deal with National Treasure 3? Because when they announced it, it was everywhere. Now I don't know where it's at. Bring on the Nicolas Cage. It's the, as far as I am aware, it was never greenlit, right? I believe it, it's been a while here. I'll say uh, National Treasure 3. If, if I remember correctly... It was basically said they're going to try developing it. But remember, something going into development is different from being greenlit, right? It's different from being greenlit. So let me just double check here. Uh, so if we go back to January, let me go to an article uh, from January of 2020. And what we've got here is a headline. And I don't know if this is going to work. I hope it does. Uh, not yet. Hold on a second. I'll, I'll get it. Give me a second here. All right. What we've got here is a headline. National Treasure 3 moves ahead from Disney Jerry Bruckheimer. So let's see what it says here. Uh, Disney. Now, remember, this is a year ago. This is one year ago. Disney and Jerry Bruckheimer are moving ahead with a third National Treasure movie uh, with Bad Boys for Life screenwriter Chris Beamer tapped to write the script. Beamer has also signed on to write a fourth Bad Boys for Sony with Bruckheimer producing. Bruckheimer produced the three Bad Boy films, National Treasure movies, blah. National Treasure franchise starring Nicholas Cage. Blah, 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 blah. Um, I know Jerry Bruckheimer is National Treasure 1 and 2. like to make a third movie. Okay, here's where we're at. So Bob Iger said about it in 2016 and 2019. I know Jerry Bruckheimer, who produced National Treasure 1 and 2, would like to make a third movie, and I know discussions about the film have gone on probably since 2016 with our studio, but I know they have not greenlit such a film, Iger said last year. So if I'm not mistaken, uh, if I'm not mistaken, what they what they did what they were announcing a year ago is that they have commissioned a script they commissioned it to get developed to have somebody oversee it that would be Bruckheimer and get a script written but that stage of a movie is not necessarily mean green light lots of movies enter development and then never happen so to the best of my knowledge right now we never got any confirmation that National Treasure 3 is happening. They were going to try to develop a script, see where it goes from there. But as far as I know, there was never anything that says National Treasure 3 is happening. I could, I, I just might not be remembering it properly. Um, actually, here's something interesting. 
let me let me see if I can bring this up. And I'm probably spending too much time. Um, either, there, I'm seeing articles right now from like sci-fi that's saying things like this. And this was just from a couple of months ago. This was from, I think, September. Yeah, September 24th. The sci-fi is writing, producer says National Treasure 3 never happened because Disney didn't see it as a franchise. Uh, I think this thing still talks, this article talks about it with it being a possibility. But yeah, so to the best of my knowledge right now, nothing happened to National Treasure 3. It was never greenlit in the first place. So who knows? That doesn't mean just because we haven't heard anything in about a year over it, that doesn't mean it can never still happen. You know, we've had a lot of things go on in 2020. There was a pandemic. Productions got shut down. I think a lot of things got pushed to the back of the shelf. And I still think there's probably hope that National Treasure 3 sees the light of day. But at least that's the best of my recollection right now. All right. Anyway, next up. Thanks for that, Lobster. Uh, Andrew Nathan writes, one of three. Hey, John and Rob, and Rob's not here. I have a problem with Hamada's New York Times article. Why is it that before you start a big marketing push for the Snyder Cut on HBO Max, you call the film a a street that leads nowhere? I don't know if the article is implying that Hamada said, um, Hamada said this or any other source from the same camp. Aren't you supposed to hype up your property and get fans excited? And New York Times would also help to inform those who don't know about the series. I don't know. It just doesn't sit right with me. Also, his comments on two different Batman franchises had me questioning the recasting of Ben's Batman. If I'm not mistaken, the article never says that. Uh, is it being implied? Hamada also said that spinoffs will go to HBO Max that are risky for the big screen, but HBO uh, doesn't want 4-4. But Atheo doesn't want secondhand stories, but major properties to draw people into the service. I hope... Uh, that DC Films doesn't make HBO Max the CW 2.0. Wouldn't HBO want a Ben Affleck series? Well, they're they're not interested in making a Ben Affleck series uh, or Deathstroke series or even a Joker and Harley series. Any thoughts? Sorry about the four-parter. Okay, so let's go to the first thing and, and let's really focus more on this than anything else. I think what Walter Hamada... I don't think we should criticize Walter Hamada for telling his audience the truth. What's he supposed to do? Lie to the audience? Wouldn't we attack him brutally if he did? Uh, to me, it's quite refreshing. Now, look, let's even talk about uh, the book of Boba Fett, right? Disney just did the same thing with Book of Boba Fett because when they announced the Book of Boba Fett, they also said it is a limited one-shot series. It's a one-shot thing, one season. That's what they're doing with it is a limited one-shot thing. And is that them going, well, you're undermined? No, no, no. It's just them being straight up with the audience. This is a special event. There's not going to be according to them right now, maybe things could change later, but as of right now, there, there are no plans to do Boba Fett season two. It is a special series event. It is a limited series, right? One season. They got a story to tell. They're going to tell it in one season, right? That's just also them being upfront with the audience. Like we got this special things coming. It's a one-time thing and here it comes. Let's go. And I think that's especially important in the DC world right now because, listen, there's a lot of misinformation and a lot of speculation going around that 
they're going to they're going to resurrect the Snyderverse and they're going to bring it back. It's like, why would Warner Brothers do that? They did Snyder's movies and they failed. You know, having idiots like me be desperately in love with Man of Steel and liking Batman versus Superman doesn't change anything. Half the audience hated them, half the critics hated them, and they all underperformed financially. The movies they've done without Snyder have done better. Joker made a billion dollars. Aquaman made a billion dollars. The first Wonder Woman outperformed, you know, Man of Steel. You know, it's just the way it is. Even though Man of Steel should be the number one box office film of all time, I'm just saying. Uh, That notwithstanding, so if indeed this, you know, Snyder cut HBO Max miniseries is indeed seen as a one shot limited special thing that they're doing, should they not be upfront and honest about that as they're talking about it? I don't think it's ever a bad idea to tell your audience the truth about the nature of the projects you have coming out. I don't think it's ever a bad idea to tell the truth. So no, I have no problem with that. I think that's a good thing. I think it's, it's highlighting what, uh, at least as far as what they're communicating, it's good for them to tell the audience exactly what it is. This is a one shot special thing. What, like, why should they mislead their audience and make the audience think, Ooh, we're going to do another thing that spins off of that when they have no intention of doing that, that would be kind of slimy of them to do. So if that's what they're planning and only the future will tell us, but if that's what they're planning, then I have no issues with uh, Hamada being honest with the audience and telling them exactly what is and and is not happening. Now I'm not going to answer everything you wrote in there, but, um, uh, what else were you talking about? The recasting of Ben Batts. Uh, yeah, that that has been implied several times that they are recasting. Ben Affleck is not going to be a regular guy doing Batman anymore. He he agreed to come back and do this one thing. I think that's the swan song to get out. So there's that. And also, look, Warner Brothers is still looking at it as the big money is to be made theatrically, not on HBO Max. There's no money to be made on HBO Max. There's no money to be made there. I I think there are still people at Warner Brothers who see things the way a lot of people at Disney see them, which is put the real uh, high potential movies in theaters, make $700 million on them, and then put it on HBO Max later and reap the benefits of it being on HBO Max later. You get both and. You get both and. And for them to say, now, projects that we don't think could draw a big audience in theaters like Static Shock or or something else. Projects that we don't have high confidence could actually make money or a significant amount of money in theater. Let's downscale it a little bit and let's give it life on HBO Max. That, that kind of makes sense to me. That kind of makes sense to me. So I, I personally think that the plan they have right now is pretty good because here's the reality of it. The, the HBO Max isn't going to make them any money. HBO Max as a whole will make money for the service, but dropping, I don't know, like drop one movie dropping on there isn't going to make or break that service uh, in the long run. So I, I kind of, I understand where DC is going. And by the way, nothing is in concrete right now. Like we still got to get through this pandemic and let's see what the state of everything is after the pandemic. Cause just because they're saying one thing now, doesn't mean they won't be forced to change their minds later. Right? So 
as far as what they're saying right now, I have no issues with what they're saying right now and what their mindset seems to be and how they're approaching it right now with their DC properties. I think it's actually a little bit refreshing that they're being straight up with the audience that, hey, this Snyder Cut thing is a one-shot deal. Great. Be straight up with the audience. Let them know what to expect and, and whatever. But again, let's see how things actually transpire a little bit more, Andrew, once we actually get through the pandemic and see what the landscape is like, because that could change everything, man. Could absolutely change everything. And you might find Walter Hamada has to go back and change things that he said. Maybe they change direction and change strategy. So uh, we'll see what happens. All right. Uh, let's see. Next up, Gabe writes, I just want to clarify that on many occasions now that Zack Snyder has said the extra footage he shot will only be around two minutes. Everything else in the movie was from his original shoot. Well, okay, but that's, that's bullshit. That's bullshit. And here, here's why that's bullshit. It doesn't take you four weeks to shoot two minutes. It just doesn't happen. It does not take you four weeks to shoot two minutes. And they shot for weeks. They did weeks of pickup shooting. So either Zack Snyder is giving some misdirection, which is totally fine if he does, or he's the absolute worst director in history that it literally takes him weeks to shoot two minutes of footage. That's, that's, you, you, you don't need, you don't have Jared Leto coming in and you've got, Amber Heard coming in to do Mara stuff and you've got Deathstroke coming in to do Deathstroke stuff and you reshot stuff with Ben Affleck and Batman and you've got this and you've got that and, and you've got that and you took weeks and weeks and weeks of shooting for only two minutes of footage. So we're left with two options. Option number one, Zack Snyder is the most inept, you know, terrible at his job director of all time, which he's not. Or the other option is it's a little bit of misdirection from Zack Snyder. I, I, I believe it's a little bit of misdirection direction from Zack Snyder. So that's just my take on that. That's just my take on that. All right. Anyway, next up, Chuck the Mystery writes, Hey, John and Rob, after watching your documentary for the second time, thank you so much for that, man, on New Year's Day, it brings me to a question. In it, you discuss hosted trailers like Hitchcock for Psycho or... Um, uh, Cecil B. DeMille for Cleopatra. How do you think hosted trailers would work today? Thanks. It all depends on how they're done. You know, one of one of the things we talk about in my uh, my documentary, which is called Movie Trailers: A Love Story. Here, let me let me plug it here quick. My movie, Movie Trailers, A Love Story. It's a documentary. It is available now. Uh, give me a chance to plug it. It is now available worldwide. Wherever you live in the world, you can get it at vimeo.com slash on demand slash movie trailers. Wherever you live in the world, you can get it there. Or if you happen to live in the US or the UK, you have another option of watching it on Amazon. So just go to Amazon if you live in the US or the UK and search for Movie Trailers, A Love Story, and you should also find an option to buy it there. Anyway, Enough of the plugging. Uh, in one part, we talk. We have a this this expert, this historian on film trailers. Uh, literally, the guy who wrote the book on movie trailers. Uh, anyway, he's a professor in uh, in the UK, and he's brilliant. Anyway, he he talks about this period in history where we had this good period of history where trailers were hosted. Either an actor 
who wasn't even in the movie or an, or an actor from the movie or the director, like Cecil B. DeMille, Alfred Hitchcock, as he mentioned, actually host a trailer saying, hello, ladies and gentlemen, I have this new movie coming and, you know, do whatever. And, and it's like literally a little hosted spot. How would that be received today? Well, it could be really interesting because it's not done today. So if all of a sudden out of nowhere, if, you know, I don't know, James Gunn decided to do a hosted trailer saying, hi, everybody, I'm James Gunn. This is Harley Quinn. You remember from these different movies. Now she's here. This is Idris Elba, blah, blah, blah. This is Polka Dot Man. Blah, blah. This is King Shark. You know, and he actually hosts the, tra- and that's the trailer. I don't know if it's done the right way. It could be, it could be perceived pretty interestingly, especially since it's been so long since it's ever been done before. So it's something that some studio might want to take a crack at it sometime. I don't know. I'll have to wait and see. All right. Thanks for checking out my movie, Chuck. I really appreciate that, man. All right. Next up, uh, we go to Thomas and Thomas writes, Hey, John, last night I decided to watch the movie Ninja Assassin. That's been a while. And was wondering if you've ever watched, if you've watched it yet. And if you have what your thoughts on the movie, thanks. Wait a second. I might be thinking of a different Ninja Assassin. If you're saying if I've watched the movie yet, you might be talking about a modern movie. Hold a second. Ninja Assassin. Because uh, the, the one I'm thinking of, um, Oh, you know what? I, you're probably thinking of the 2009 movie. I'm thinking of like the the 1980s movie. Well, let me see here. Ninja Assassin. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. The one that uh, James McTee d- directed, right? Super hyper violent. Yeah, I wasn't a big fan. I, I wasn't a big fan of it, to be honest with you. It, it was kind of bonkers. Super violent. I know I only ever saw it once, but I saw it in the movie theaters. I saw it in theaters. And I don't recall. Now, if you're talking about another movie, called ninja assassin since then then i'm not familiar but if this is the one you're talking about yeah i don't ever think i was a huge fan of it and again it's been like 11 years since i've watched it uh the user rating on imdb which i mean can't ever really be trusted anyway isn't so great at 6.3 out of 10 but uh yeah i again it's been 11 years since i saw it i saw it in theaters never watched it again uh because i really don't think it was one that impressed me very much. So if I'm, if I'm thinking about it correctly, hopefully that's the Ninja Assassin movie you're referring to, Thomas. Thanks for writing that in, man. All right, next up. Uh, History Fan writes, Hi, John. Recently watched Blood of Zeus. I kind of dug it. I'll be honest. I kind of dug Blood of Zeus. I can only think of the story disappointment of Wonder Woman 84. We all love Greek mythology. So I hope we find them still alive doing mischief. Uh, one of our enemies is Demios, and hopefully they introduce Hercules in the future. Of course, one of the big problems is in the first Wonder Woman, they said all the gods are dead. So I don't know. I Listen, I think it could have been really interesting in Wonder Woman 84 if they brought actually in the end credits, brought in the God who created the Dreamstone in the first place and made a deal with Barbara. Again, you got to deal with the problem that Wonder Woman, the first one, said the gods were dead, but I don't know, work around it. But just let me mention something here, Blood of Zeus. Blood of Zeus, to me, wasn't as good as, say, like... um, um, Damn it! Why am I freezing on the name of the uh, of the uh, of the animated show? Oh, now I'm freezing on the name of this other animated show. The one with the vampires, uh, Transylvania, uh, and, and Castlevania. That's what it is. Is, is it Castlevania? Is that the one it is? Hold on, let me just double check it here. Uh, Castle. Uh, 
Yes, Castlevania. Thank you so much. It is Castlevania. Uh, Castlevania was really cool. I enjoyed Castlevania very, very much. So along comes uh, Blood of Zeus. And Blood of Zeus is done very much in the same kind of style uh, as that. And I didn't like it of like I didn't like it as much as I liked uh, Castlevania. I thought Castlevania was done a little bit better, but I really did enjoy Blood of Zeus. And when it was over, I was like, oh, that's all the episodes there are. That frustrates me, actually. You get into a season of something and you realize, wait a minute, it's only like, I think, like, I think the first season of Castlevania was like three episodes, like three or four, four maximum, right? It was like, and this one was also pretty short. It was just only like six, seven or eight episodes. I can't remember, but I, I kind of hate that because then you, you're expecting another episode. It's like, oh, wait a minute. That was the last one. Anyway, if you have not checked out Blood of Zeus, I encourage you to check it out. I enjoyed it. It's not for everybody. And like, again, I think it's not quite as good as Castlevania, but I still quite enjoyed it. And yeah, I think there is narrative possibilities there for bringing in the gods, but then they got to figure out how they explain that with the first one was saying all the gods are dead. So I don't know. There, there's some, I think there's possibilities there history. All right. Next up, uh, Jeremy writes, I just wanted to thank you for your show. Thank you so much, Jeremy. I listen to the audio version every day, by the way, in case you guys did not know, let me see if I can bring up, uh, let me see if I can bring this up. There is, for those of you who do not know, an audio only version of the show. Uh, it is the John Campia Show podcast. You can go and get it on any podcast. It's just basically the audio version of the show. So when you, you know, if you want to listen to the show, but you're driving or you're on your treadmill at home or you're trying to work and focus on other things at the same time, the audio version is there. Go and search for the John Campia Show podcast on your podcasting app of choice, and you should find it there. And thank you to everybody uh, who has already subscribed to it. I appreciate that, everyone. Anyway, let's get back to Jeremy, shall we? Um, I've just been plugging things the last few minutes. Jeremy writes, I just want to thank you for your show. I listen to the audio version every day. I love the fact that you're always pointing out that film is subjective and no one's opinion on movie is wrong, even if it different from, differs from yours. Also, Man of Steel rocks. You're damn right, Man of Steel rocks. And listen, some people, it still amazes me and disappoints me that there are still so many people that have such a hard time grasping that film is subjective. And they see that almost like a negative thing when really the subjectivity of film is the most beautiful thing about movies and the art. Because even if you get what many of us would consider to be the most wretched train wreck, horrible movie ever, there are people out there that it gives some joy to. And there are people out there who get entertainment out of it. And there are people out there who have positive experience with it. Every movie no matter how bad you think it is, somebody else loves it. And here's the other thing. Every movie, no matter how bad other people say it is, you might actually find something that is really special to you and works. You know, it comes down to this. You have 10 people standing in a museum around a piece of art on the wall, and we're all looking at the same thing, but the 10 different people will have will see 10, 10 different things, and they'll, ex they'll have 10 different experiences with the exact same thing that's hanging on the wall. The same is true as movies. You have 10 people in the audience watching the same movie, but we have 10 uniquely different experiences with it. And that is not a weakness of movies. That is the inherent beauty and strength of movies and why I love movies so much. Anyway, thank you so much for that, Jeremy. And thanks for subscribing to the podcast. And thank you for writing in, man. I appreciate that. All right, next up, uh, Jack Lumbers writes, 
In terms of the point of Wonder Woman 84, I can argue there are three points for the character and the movie. One, it uh, it retcons her hiding from the world with the ending. So if the point is to be a contradiction, I can see that. Uh, two, she gets the ability to fly. Some people will say she didn't fly. I agree with you, she did, but that just kind of magically came out of nowhere. Like, that's that's the thing to me. If indeed it showed her she now had the ability to fly. Really? She's centuries old. She never knew she could fly until hearing Steve say, flying is just riding the wind. Wow, flying is like riding the wind. I think I can do that. And like that was so ridiculous. Uh, Three, she starts the process of moving on from Steve. Again, yes, if it wasn't for the fact that we already saw Batman versus Superman and knows that that at some point she goes back to completely pining for Steve. Right? Unless the point of the movie was to do a giant retcon of all the things they had already done. Either way, it's a mess. Like, anyway, you cut it, it's a mess. So, yeah, I, I, I got to admit, man, I still struggle a bit with it. Understand, trying to figure out what was the point of the movie. Like, what, why was this movie needed? Within the terms, like, no film has ever been needed. But within the terms of your own franchise... What was the point of this movie? Why was this movie needed within within the scope of your own franchise? And I still struggle with that. I got to admit, I still struggle with that. But that's just my take on it, Jack. Thank you for sharing yours, man. I appreciate that. Right, MPE94 writes, Is everyone sleeping on Edgar Wright's new movie, Last Night in Soho? Yes. Uh, comes out this year, and Anya Taylor-Joy, Matt Smith, and uh, Diana Rigg in it. If the trailer is good. It will definitely be in my top 10 most anticipated of the year. Well, listen, I'm excited. Again, I've seen nothing of it uh, to like, I just did my top 10 most, ex- most anticipated movies of the year. And I did not include it. As a matter of fact, I'm not 100% sure. Hold a second. I'm not 100% sure it actually comes out this year. Does it? Uh, last night in Soho. Uh, let me just double check. I could be wrong about that. Oh my God. No. And it comes out earlier than I thought it comes out on April 23rd. Um, I've seen nothing of it to really get excited about. So it did not make my list. It did not make my list of most anticipated, but just the fact that it's Edgar Wright, just the fact that it is Edgar Wright, that is enough to get me excited. And obviously right now, uh, with Anya Taylor joy, um, being, you know, as, as hot as she is right now because of Queen's Gambit specific. I mean, she's really hot right now for many, many reasons, but uh, specifically for Queen's Gambit, then that just kind of adds to that. That just adds to it in a great way. So yeah, I mean, anytime Edgar Wright directs something, it's something to look forward to and it's something to, to be excited about. Again, it just didn't make my top 10 list, but let's see if that would change once we actually see a trailer drop. All right. Uh, Zagard writes, Hey, John and Rob, who's not here. I just wanted to ask, since it's a new year, if you had the Infinity Gauntlet and had the chance to snap your fingers and fix one thing from any movie or TV show from 2020, which would you pick and why? Anything from 2020? Hmm. I mean, I don't know. Like, if, if if we were including 2019, I would fix everything about The Rise of Skywalker. But... Aside from that, uh, 2020, I don't know, like, like all the major comic book movies that came out in 2020, I've been disappointed in like Wonder Woman, New Mutants, uh, Bloodshot, 
and uh, 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 Harley Quinn and Birds of Prey. But none of them were so important to me that I really needed them to be great. So I don't know. I mean, obviously, if I could do anything regarding the movie business, it would be that COVID never happened so that we could have had a proper year for movies on top of everything else. But you're asking me to confine my comments to the movie world. So that would be it. But other than that, you know, um, I can't wish that we would have seen Dune because we're still going to get to see Dune. We just have to wait a little longer. Uh, no time to die, but we're still going to get to see no time to die. We're just gonna have to wait a little bit longer. So yeah, honestly, man, nothing comes to mind. I never had any like world shakingly disappointments to me because like, yeah, I was disappointed with wonder woman, but I think I didn't think it was a steaming hot pile of trash and it's not like it was my most anticipated movie of the year. So yeah, man, I, I don't know. It's a decent question. I just don't know how to approach that. What do you, how would you guys answer? What do you guys think about that? All right. Last question of the day. And then I think we're pretty much caught up on all the questions that we had through today's John Campion show. And the rest have all been questions sent in that are meant for tomorrow's John Campion show. So we'll pick this up tomorrow. But the last question today uh, comes to us from MD who writes, I cannot believe you have ever watched Friday Night Lights. I mentioned that earlier today. The TV show. I've seen the movie. I've never watched the show. Uh, Kyle Chandler, Connie Britton, Taylor Kitsch, who I really like Taylor Kitsch, Jesse Plemons, who's awesome, Michael B. Jordan, Journey Smollett, Adrian, uh, Adriana Pilecki, uh, Aldous Hodge, even Black Lightning is in it. Hope you can one day. Yeah, it's not. I'm not going to lie to you. It's not high on my priority list. Now, again, I am a guy that most of my time is spent watching movies more than TV shows. Obviously there is a bunch of TV I watch, but not as much as most people do because I'm more tied up. I have a job that takes me, has me working 12 plus hours a day on top of that. So when I do have time, I want to watch movies. And so, and I squeeze in there, the TV shows that I can, but Friday night lights is one of several big shows. I've never gotten around to watching. I know Rob loves that show. He always raves about it. And yeah, the lineup of it is incredible. But I just have so many other big, big shows that I need to to when I have the opportunity to kind of get caught up on. So I'm not going to lie. I'm not going to lie. Friday Night Lights is pretty far down my list right now. I, I, I hear it's amazing. I hear it's absolutely amazing, but it is a little bit further down. All right. I said we'd only do one more, but, you know, heck with it. We'll do two more and then we'll wrap it up today. Uh, Willow writes. What is your general etiquette for talking spoilers for movies like Wonder Woman 84 and Soul that are released directly to streaming DV, uh, streaming slash v, uh, VOD? You know what? I'm not even sure yet. I'm not even sure yet because it's such a new thing. Look, here's what my here's what my two policies have been regarding movies and TV show traditionally movies spoiler policy unless it's like an end game where after three weeks, everybody on the planet has seen it. But generally speaking, my spoiler rule for movies has always been, you have to wait until you can talk about a movie, but you can't give spoilers until the movie has done its full theatrical run and then been on home video for a week or two. If a movie has gone through its full theatrical run, and then been available on home video for a week or two, and you still haven't seen it, then that means you're not all that interested. You can say you're really interested in it, but if you were really interested in it, you would have seen it by then. That gave you plenty of opportunity. And at some point, the movie fan community has to be free to openly discuss certain movies. And for movies, my rule has always generally been that, you know, except in, you know, uh, spoiler discussions where you give headlines, this is a spoiler discussion. You try not to give spoilers for the full theatrical run, and then a couple of weeks of it being on home video. Television, 
is completely different. I've always said you've got 24 to 48 hours. Um, that television, like say the, you know, the newest episode of Sons of Anarchy is out and um, you don't want to get spoiled for it. Okay. Then I think it's good etiquette to give it 24 or 48 hours. But after 24 or 48 hours, it's on you. It, it, it then becomes, the onus becomes on you to either make sure you watch that episode of TV or two, the onus is on you to avoid social media until you can. Because it's been publicly broadcast. Anybody could have watched it. There, There's a critical mass of people who have seen it. The audience needs to be free to openly discuss what just happened, right? It, it's like sports, right? Um, there, you know, last night, there was a big playoff implication football game between the Philadelphia Eagles and the Washington football team. Let's say you didn't get a chance to watch it as it was happening. Okay, that's fine. But then it's your responsibility to stay off social media so you don't hear the score. You don't get to get mad at other people for saying, oh my God, can you believe how that game ended? Can you believe they pulled Jalen Hurts and Alex Smith? You know, they won the game and Alex Smith is going to the playoffs. I mean, if you can't watch it when it's happening, the onus is on you to avoid social media. With narrative television, I give you 24 hours, maybe 48. But now we have this, this emerging new thing where, you know, like Mulan was different because Mulan was a premium thing. You had to pay 30 bucks. So not a lot of people were going to watch it. But Wonder Woman and Soul were out there for free if you had a subscription to HBO Max or if you had uh, had Disney Plus. And I'll be honest with you, I haven't worked out for myself. What should the spoiler rule be for this new paradigm? And I, I don't know that I've come across. Listen, obviously, like three or four days after Wonder Woman 84 first came out on Christmas Day, we were just talking open spoilers about it. Because mo most people who wanted to see it had had a chance to see it and watch it. And we were just talking open spoilers about it. And it was everywhere because it was, quote unquote, for free. So everybody was talking about it everywhere. But it does create an interesting question. We have one paradigm for movies, one paradigm for TV. What do you do with this new emerging paradigm? And I don't think I've worked out a, a, a policy on that yet for myself. I don't, I don't know what the right etiquette for that is. You know, and so I'm not sure, Will. I'm working out. If you guys got ideas and thoughts, please share them. I, I'm open to it. I want to hear some ideas and thoughts. And if you guys have ideas and thoughts on that, please do let me know. All right, next up, and this will be the last one of the day. Kara Black writes, Tom Brady, at the insane age of 43, just threw for over 4,600 yards and 40 touchdown passes. What a legendary greatest of all time. And some people, or should I say clowns, said he was a system QB who couldn't win slash be great without Belichick. Here's the interesting thing. I listen to a lot of sports guys. I, I, I listen to a lot of sports guys. Uh, and I watch a lot of sports shows and listen to a lot of sports podcasts. Colin Cowherd, uh, who I don't always agree with, but Colin Cowherd put it best. I, last week he said this, and he put it best. To everybody who says that Tom Brady was just a system quarterback, what you don't understand is that Tom Brady is the system. And that struck me as, 
I mean, you know, when a truth gets spoken, that seems like it should be so obvious. It just kind of washes over you. Yeah. It's not Tom Brady was not a system quarterback. Tom Brady is the system. He's the system. Bill Belichick has a losing record uh, as a coach in games that he's coached in the NFL without Tom Brady. Um, oh, uh, uh, New England offensive, former De- uh, Denver head coach. Uh, hold on a second. Uh, Patriots offensive uh, coordinator, Josh McDaniels. You know, Josh McDaniels for years has been the offensive coordinator in New England, you know, through some Super Bowls and all that kind of stuff. What big system did Josh McDaniels have that had such great success before he had Tom Brady at quarterback? He didn't have any great success. There was no system. Tom Brady is the system. The Tampa Bay Buccaneers had not gone to the playoffs in 12 years. The New England Patriots, I can't even remember the last time they didn't make the playoffs. I don't know that they ever did miss the playoffs with Tom Brady as quarterback. There was the one year they won 11 games, but they didn't make the they didn't make the playoffs, but that was the year that Tom Brady was out with the broken leg. Now, I'm not saying this for sure, but I think I think New England never once failed to make the playoffs with Tom Brady. I I could be wrong about that. There might be one or two years, but basically, so what happened in the very first year that Tom Brady left the new England Patriots and went to the Tampa Bay Buccaneers who had not been in the playoffs in 12 years. What happened? New England finishes six. I think they finished six and nine, seven and nine. They finished with a losing record. Don't make the playoffs. Tampa Bay Buccaneers are in the playoffs. Tom Brady is the system. Your offense is built around him. And uh, that has just become more and more and more apparent. And listen, I'll tell you what, I'm a big Tom Brady fan, but I said at the beginning of this year, listen, Tom's going to have a good year, but do not expect, you know, Tom Brady to to throw for 4,000 yards. Don't expect Tom Brady at 42, 43 years old to be throwing 30 touchdown passes. Well, what did he do? He threw for over 6,000 yards, threw for about 40. I mean, it's it's amazing. It's, abso- it's absolutely amazing. It is absolutely incredible. All right, that got me pumped up. So I'm going to do one more, <laughs> even though I said, we'll take one more a couple of times already. We'll, we'll take one more. Uh, not Kevin Feige writes, favorite films of 2020. Number one, Sound of Metal. Number two, Soul. Number three, The Trial of the Chicago 7. That's my number one right there is Trial of the Chicago 7. Number four, Tenet. Number five, Sputnik. Number six, The Invisible Man. Number seven, Emma. Number eight, Borat, subsequent movie film. Number nine, Mank. Number 10, Wonder Woman, 1984. And I, it's still amazing to me. Nobody wants to put on their top 10 list what is my second favorite movie of the year that nobody talks about granted i like it a lot more than most other people did but it's matthew mcconaughey's movies uh the gentleman henry golding's in that too i love the gentleman it is guy Ritchie in you know just prime classic guy Ritchie form doing it again you know kind of like the movies it was the first time in a long time i've seen do a movie where it really felt like that lock stock and two smoking barrels or snatch or things like that it was such a great return to that form vintage guy Ritchie. uh totally love that movie and it was my number it was my personal number one favorite movie of the year until i saw trial of the chicago seven 
And then Trial of the Chicago 7 became my, my favorite movie of the year. But uh, there's that. All right, guys. For everybody else, from uh, Stubble McShave, not Kevin Feige, Captain Blue Pants on, don't worry. On tomorrow's John Campy show, we will start off our live questions part of the show with your live questions. I believe we are now. It's only taken us about two weeks, but I think we are now officially all caught up. I think we got through all the questions that got sent in. Uh, before the end of today's show, or at least we're very, very close to it. So I think we are now all caught up, guys, which is great, which 